Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm back for the second time uh, with one of my early guests on the show, uh, Professor Dave Snowden. Last time we were walking uh, in the in the hills around your home in Wiltshire, and and we had a little and we had tea in in your home, which I felt uh, honoured to have uh, partaken in with you. Uh, but this time, of course, it's over Zoom. Uh, welcome back, Dave Snowden. Pleasure to be with you. Right, and of course and you have are. Tea. Go on. Have you got the tea? Oh, great. I don't, don't I have my white tea. I still remember it. So for those of people who don't know, for people who, who know you, of course, um, you know, you have a huge and affectionate uh, fan base uh, around the world. But there will presumably be some people listening to this who've never heard of you and have never heard of your sort of signature work, Kinevin, um, which I'm hoping will be the basis of our conversation today. Which is a, a decision-making framework. I'm, well, in fact, I'm not going to say any more about it. I'd like you to introduce it to the audience to begin with, and of course, you know, we, this will be a brief summary of it. Um, but it, at least it will familiarise ourselves with this thing that we're going to end up talking about. I'm sure for the next hour or so. So I'm going to bring up on screen now uh, a version uh, of the diagram which illustrates it. And I'm going to ask you just to talk it through in, in summary what this is and what it's about. OK, so at its heart, Kinevin has three domains, all right, an ordered domain, a complex domain and a chaotic domain. And those are three different types of system. And it's important to understand there are phase shift boundaries between it. So if you think about when you if you heat water up to 100 degrees, it doesn't immediately become steam. You have to put more heat in before it becomes steam. It always warms up a bit before snow because the liquid is becoming a solid and it throws out heat. That's called latent heat. Yeah. So we have effectively ordered systems, complex systems, chaotic systems. An ordered system has such a high level of constraint that everything is predictable and everything is structured. A chaotic system has no effective constraints, so it's random. Yeah. And a complex system, everything is entangled with everything else. So it's like bramble bushes in a thicket, to use Gerardo's metaphor. If I pull one thing, I've got no idea what will happen elsewhere. Yeah. So everything is entangled. Right? So those are the three types of system. And I say it's a phase shift transition between them. And if you um, know anything about physics, you know there's a thing called the triple point, which is a combination of pressure and temperature which the system is equistable between solid, liquid and gas. It can move in any direction. In Kinevin, that's that AC or confused domain in the middle. Right? So, and, and, that's, and, and that's actually where you start, is I'm here, where should I go? Kinevin then takes order and divides it into two, clear and complicated, and that's a reference to the relationship between cause and effect. So in a clear domain, yeah, in Britain, we drive on the left. In Germany, they drive on the right. It's obvious what we should do. There's no argument about it. Whereas in complicated, you need expertise or analysis to work out what the right thing is to do. But there is a right thing. Yeah? So that boundary between clear and complicated isn't a phase shift. It's just a gradient. It's done for convenience. Yeah? Um, the boundary between clear and chaotic is shown as a cliff. This is kind of like a catastrophic fold, going back to René Tom. 
So if you want, oh, hang on for people who are not from Rene Tom and catastrophic bonds, should we? I'm just about to describe catastrophe, catastrophe theory. All right. So okay, it's the last grain of sand which causes the sand pile to collapse. It's a straw right. that breaks the camel's back. Yeah. So a small event creates a catastrophic failure, but it's built up. So the way this is represented, it's like you're walking along a plateau, you know, and it's a bit misty ahead of you, but you carry on walking, and all of a sudden you're like the sort of roadrunner cartoons, you're pedaling around as you drop straight down, you become complacent, you fall over the edge into chaos. So that's shown as a cliff, that's what that squiggle at the bottom is. Yeah. Uh, we then get the green areas, so this is introduced liminality into Kinevin, this was done for the first time in 2019. Liminality in anthropology is a state of suspended transition. So there are actually four liminal domains in Kinevin. There's the liminal domain between complex and complicated. So that's where all of these entangled things, we're starting to get some structure. We're starting to get stability and constancy. Uh, it's not quite there yet, but we can shift it across. For agile members in the community, that's where techniques like Scrum come in. Yeah, um, They're really good at making things which are almost complicated, fully complicated. And that's a good thing to do. Yeah. The liminal between complex and chaotic is where we use wisdom of crowds. So, yeah, if um, famous example on this, a US submarine grounded off the coast of Portugal in the 60s. Nobody knew where it was. So they gave partial data to groups of experts around the world, including, interestingly, some Nova Scotia fishermen. They asked them all to estimate the position. None of them got it right, but a probability distribution of all the estimates was 600 meters away from the submarine. And the point is, if you get multiple agents with deep tacit knowledge estimating independently of each other, then you get a normal distribution. And it's that separation, that randomness, which is key. Um, so that gives us a way of doing decision support and hypothesis generation. So that's that liminal area. You then get this rather cute area in the complicated. That's where you get conflicting experts. So in the UK, for example, on COVID, at the start of it, there was a massive conflict between behavioral economists and epidemiologists. So you know that experts know the solution, but you don't know which group of experts are in which combination. So that's right. And then the really interesting area, the liminal area in the central domain, which is generally known as confused. But the liminal area here is called aporetic. So that's a new word for a lot of people. Um, aporia are things, deliberate confusions, paradoxes. So the famous one in philosophy is the statement, I always lie. Well, if I always lie, I just lied. So that means I tell the truth. But then I, yeah. the point about paradoxes is you can't resolve them. They're not like dilemmas. They force you to think differently. So, the, so in, a, in heavyweight crisis management, and this is a key part of the new field book to complexity and crisis management, which comes out next week, which we published with the European Commission. Um, in a crisis, you shift it from chaos to apparatic as fast as you can. And then that allows you to decide where you take different parts of the problem. Yeah. So the essence of Kinevin is a multi-method, multi-approach. One size doesn't fit all. You need to understand the nature of the system before you decide the nature of intervention. Okay. Um, and this is very powerful and useful for supporting decision making. And I just want to pick up on something there. You know, this is much my understanding of the, as anything else. You talked there about 
moving from chaotic to aporatic, right? So we move from uh, the, the way I see it, the sky is falling to sort of allowing ourselves to be in this state of sort of in, of confusion or, or, or not being sure uh, or, or in confronted with a paradox. Like, what does that actually mean to mo- I can't actually move reality, can I? So what do you mean when you yeah, say well, move? You can, right? Um... I mean, Kinevin is a dynamic framework. The, the word in Welsh, all right, means the place of your multiple belongings. But it's a flow word. It's not a nostalgia word. The, the nostalgia word in Welsh is heriot, the need to return. Yeah. So it's not the same as Heimat in German, for example. So it's a concept that things are constantly flowing and you can influence the flow. Right. So if you take what Jessica did in New Zealand at the start of COVID, she, impo- she broke the law yeah, and imposed draconian constraints. Now, that's a shift into the apparatic. She created breathing space. After that, she didn't make any decisions, and she got it right, because the principle is the only time a leader makes decisions is in a crisis, and the decisions they make are to create options. And after that, they coordinate and they distribute decision-making. So that's a shift into apparatic. Yeah? Right. By locking down early, now you compare that with the US and the UK, they faffed around, they weren't sure they should do it. By the time they did do it, it was too late to give them many options. Yeah. So we've got, I think, the highest death per head per head ratio of any advanced nation in Britain. Uh, 25 people have died in New Zealand and they're back play, they're back at rugby grounds. Right. Yeah. So that you so but couldn't we argue that even if they hadn't put in good draconian merit, merit measures they were still in apparatic situation no because equivalent nations um well no they would have stayed in in a mixture of chaotic apparatic is a state of apparatic, deliberate sorry. confusion not it's not accidental confusion um where people like britain were is they they faffed around and did things but they ended up in confused not apparatic and they're still doing it everything has been done late because nobody wants to make hard decisions Right. Yeah. So, okay. We'll lock down international travel. Well, maybe not for everybody, just for those countries. Yeah. Um, we'll close down, but not for Christmas because I don't want to be the person who stops Christmas. So we get, I mean, that's attributable to God knows how many deaths. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's over a hundred thousand deaths in the UK. Right. And, you know, God help us in the States. I mean, they're already, you've already got people dying because they, they're too many people to be admitted to hospitals. The triage stress in, health services worldwide is really scary at the moment in brazil you've got to take you've got to bring your own oxygen to the hospital right yeah yeah um and that's 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 an example of effectively and that's why we make this contrast between apparatic and confused apparatic is deliberate so you can exit confused is simply what it says it's bloody confused so you may never really exit from chaos as a result right right and, and you might fall into confused from chaos. Yeah, it's it's not unnatural, particularly when, I mean, it, it's no coincidence the countries with populist leaders have had the most problem. Because the populist leaders have got where they have by saying what people wanted to hear, regardless of the consequence. Right? And by actually not engaging in the argument. Right. And if you, you look at our own leader, right, at the moment, um, Prime Minister's question times is a farce because he just ignores the question and just comes up with a series of phrases he knows his base will want to hear. 
which is what Trump did. And, and that's the danger. If you don't engage in discourse, yeah, and populists never do that, you end up in a, in a bad place. Right. And so you're saying here that we want to take some deliberate, active measure um, that gives us um, a new set of options, essentially a new set right. of problems. So you get into the apparatic space, right? Next yeah. thing you do, throw the situation out to thousands of people to get them to interpret it to find what the hypotheses are. Yeah. Yeah. For the hypotheses which are competing, run safe to fail experiments. That's complex. Yeah. Yeah, for where you get conflicting experts, we have a technique called a trioptican, which throws experts together in a highly constrained dance over two days. And the leader can observe it to decide what to do. If there's stuff that you've been ignoring, and, and you know, to be fair to leaders, all right, they've always got experts and scientists warning them about doom and disaster. They can't respond to all of them. You now know who was right, so give them some funding and let them get on with it. So it's that ability to move aspects of the problem into different spaces, which is the apparatic, is, is about. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, and now the other the other aspect of this, um, and again, let's let's do it briefly then. But we've got two other two other elements here. Um, well, there are actually three, but let's focus on constraints and then the style of practice. So should we touch on those briefly? Yeah. So constraints are really important. Um, I mean, for several reasons. One is human beings are not capable of doing an objective assessment of the situation. It's just not possible. We can't like, and in evolutionary terms, we haven't got time to do that anyway. So if you're, you know, hunter-gatherer tribe, you make decisions fast. So one of the things that constraint mapping does is it stops you deciding what to do. It forces you to map things that can be managed and then you modify the constraints and see what happens. So that's a much more objective form of decision-making. But it also allows us to define the domain. So in the clear domain, the constraints are fixed and rigid. You know, you drive on the left or you drive on the right. Yeah? Yeah. Um, interestingly, if you make them over-constrained, which says you always drive on the left, then that's a mistake. Because if a kid runs on the road in front of you, you do whatever you need to do to avoid them. Yeah, so those, those rigid systems with no freedom of movement, that's when you fall over the edge into chaos. Yeah? Um, governing constraints, that means, well, give a person an example. So around about this time last year, I was recovering from a brain operation. Yeah? So I got rushed into hospital because left hemisphere was 70% compressed by a brain bleed. So they drilled two holes. It's an 8,000 year old operation and it's done wonders for my credibility in the new age communities that surround me here near Avebury because tray panning means I've got the mystical third eye. And to be honest, I can't, can't resist making up stories when I go into the pub with them or when I used to go in the pub with them. Um, and the guy who was going to operate on it was going to leave a tube in so that he could drain any fluid afterwards. And then there was an air ambulance came in. I got delayed by 12 hours. It was in a nice big room and I said, thank you. And they said, no, it's just so we could get the emergency resuscitation in if we need it quickly. So that was a sobering thought, all right? And um, so the next guy who operated didn't. He actually sealed up the wound, but did a second MRI scan. First surgeon didn't agree with that. Uh, now, both of these are right. They're both medically qualified, yeah? But there are different practices associated with what you do. He reckoned it was better not to risk the infection of a tube but risk possible brain damage with an MRI scan. I mean, 
because they're consultants, none of them consulted me, but that's the nature of consultancy, right? Um, so in good practice, provided you, you, you've crossed the barrier, the governing constraint is a constraint. Once you're inside that, you've got freedom to act. And a big mistake people do is they try and impose best practice in a good practice area, so they don't allow that diversity. Um, complex, you have what are called enabling constraints. Now, the key thing here is, and this is not universal, but it's good heuristic, an ordered domain is contained, a complex domain is connected. So connections act as constraints. And we also have this concept of dark constraints. You can see that something is connected, but you can't see what the connection is, right? So, and it's, it's rather like an endo or an exoskeleton. So an external skeleton on an insect yep. means you have conformity of, of, of output. The endoskeleton on mammals means you have a huge amount of variation, but around a coherent whole. So those are enabling constraints. Yeah. Yeah. The and other example to... from this book, actually, which I liked, was the locking knee, our locking kneecap. Right. It's a yeah. constraint in one sense, but it also allows us to kick and to run and, and so on. It does all those sort of things. And I think ev evolution doesn't happen without constraints. And there's a big deal. Lots of people confuse our use of constraints with theory of constraints. So Goldratt's theory of constraints is about things which are preventing productivity. In complexity, that's one type of constraint, but it's not the only one. There are constraints which are necessary for productivity. Yeah, yeah and there's an excellent, for those who are interested in theory of constraints and kinemic, there's an excellent chapter in this in this book on uh, contrasting. Uh, Steve Holt, we ran, we ran a really good two-day session with those guys. I mean, we're doing a lot now. I mean, I'm working this next week with Valdis Krebs on network theory and our work on entanglement, for example. Yeah. So we're now starting to run these explorations with other the bodies of theory. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, no effective constraint, right, in, cha in chaotic. Yeah, I mean, a chaotic system is, is de facto random, so which means it's only temporary. And it, there's a quite interesting common confusion. I've, I've seen people put this up and they put Mumbai traffic in chaos. Well, okay, if you're used to London, it's chaotic, all right? But if you ever go to Mumbai and you walk in a straight line across the street, you're perfectly safe. Yes. All right, it's actually a complex system. It's, it's I mean, I, I've driven, I don't know whether you've ever driven in southern Italy. Uh, well, first yes. time, yeah. Okay, well, the first time I drove into Naples, all right, and I caused a pileup because the traffic light went orange, so I slowed down and stopped. I didn't realize in Naples, they just go faster. So everybody behind me smashed into each other and I just got out. <laughs> and I had this really stressful drive down the Sorrento coast, all right, with motorbikes zipping past me on all sides, all right, and the kids in the back. And then an academic friend of mine said, it's flocking. I said, no, God, it is, right? It's, it's match speed, avoid collision, follow the next car. Right. And so I started to drive like that, stress-free driving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that actually, that's flocking is a good example of an enabling constraint. Drive on the left is a governing constraint. Follow the next car, match speed, avoid collision. That's an enabling constraint. Yeah. Yeah. And then we've touched on it a little bit, but these practices, we, in, in the clear domain, we have best practices. There is one best yeah. way. Um, then in, in uh, complex, we talk about exemptive practice, which is radical repurposing is the, the phrase we've used in the EU field book. So that's where you take something that you're already good at and repurpose it for something different. And you haven't got time to do much else. And actually this is most human innovation comes this way. So, you know, we get microwave ovens because a Raytheon engineer realized the significance of a chocolate bar melted in his pocket. So he thought if I put a metal box around that magneto, I could cook food. 
right? And then, of course, you know, Viagra is, is a radical repurposing. We got this drug with this interesting side effect, right? Yeah. So one of the big things we do in a crisis, and if you've got a knowledge map, this is a lot easier, is to actually say, what do we already know that we can do well that we could use differently in this circumstance? Yeah. So, I mean, take another personal example. I've lost count of the number of things I have radically repurposed to open beer bottles in hotel rooms late at night when there wasn't a proper opener, right? But we're very inventive as a species here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and it's not just us as a species, right? All sorts of animals engage in exactly uh, no human beings more than others it, it, it seems to be linked with um in, in humans art comes before language in human evolution so our language evolved from abstractions you can see some evidence of that in orangutans and possibly octopi by the way which is getting scary i may not be able to eat them much longer um but basically what happens with abstractions so if you go to a music concert or something like that you move up a level of abstraction yeah. So you disconnect from the material and your brain makes novel connections. Yeah. Right. So the, the, you know, art is actually quite critical to, to innovation and human evolution, which is why we get worried with the focus on STEM education. Right? Yeah. So there, this is a, a fairly unique human property. We're really good, not just at making tools, but repurposing tools. Right. Right. And then novel practice, that's when you make something up yeah and it's it's not just that it's, well, it's called bricolage as well all right so one of the things we focus on we spent two years looking at complexity based approaches to design thinking because if you look at what's happening with Odeo, then they've commoditized design thinking and a double diamond is just a linear process right so we say fine yeah you can do that that's expert ideation expert ethnography but what about distributed ethnography and expert ideation or expert ethnography distributed ideation, or then the really master one, what's called exaptive innovation, which is how do we actually radically repurpose, you know, existing capability for novel purpose? And that's a design, that's a design approach. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it reminds me to some extent of the um of of the of the lean thinking and you know that those ideas in case then where you're not allowed to use new technology, you're not allowed to use money, you've just got to you got to innovate with what's yeah. at hand. Yeah, there's actually quite a nice video that Toyota produced, uh, which looks at the history of the Toyota way. Right. Um, and it sort of starts, interestingly, with Galileo and myself and Kenevin are at the end of it. So I'm quite pleased with that video. <laughs> Book ended by two um, great thinkers. There you go. Um, all right, so that's that's and interesting. Both of us have been prosecuted for heresy, but that's another matter. Really? Where have you been oh, yeah. prosecuted for heresy? I wrote a paper once which said that Catholicism, Marxism, and Hinduism were ontologically identical, so they could be combined. And that, <laughs> that had me summoned by Ratzinger, but that's that's in my youth. Right? And by the way, I still think that's true, but that's another matter. Right. Well, that was a question I had for you actually. So, to what extent is your thinking here? influenced by your religious views it is a bit it was interesting when i mean remember i'm a philosopher right by definition um so I, I wouldn't like what i think about religion to be confused with the bible belt in the states or anthropomorphization of god or that sort of nonsense no i think i think that we we're running a project at the moment on what's called the numinous which is a lutheran idea the human beings I have that was a Kantian idea, idea. Oh, okay yeah 
No, it, it's, it's actually, it, it goes back to Hugo, right? So it's this concept of oral mysticism. You don't have to get into Kantian um, dialect, uh, Kantian dualism for that. Sorry, don't, don't raise this with a philosopher. You're in danger, right? So um, it's quite interesting. This woman was writing a, a framework, a, a paper for the cabinet office on the role of religion in the Bush White House using Canavin. It's actually a paper in the public domain. Mm. She phoned me up said, and said, you've studied Karana, haven't you? I can see it all the way through Canavin. Now, this is the Jesuit philosopher behind Vatican II. She's the only person who's ever spotted that, and I hadn't realised it till she said it. Uh, but then Rana is heavily influenced by Heidegger. Okay. Yeah, and Heidegger, yeah, I would acknowledge, along with Deleuze and people like that. So that sort of philosophical tradition, yeah, Um which is kind of like you, you'd have to go in the Heidegger camp or the Wittgenstein camp, and I'm more in the Heidegger one. And I've used a lot of Derrida and Deleuze in what I've done. So the, the, what, what you're seeing is that philosophical influence, I think. Right, okay. And for a non-philosopher like me, and I'm suspecting most of the audience, what are the key ideas then from, say, Heidegger or any of these other philosophical uh, uh, influences that, that you're playing with? Okay, I'm, I'm being a bit, I mean, this is a bit extreme, all right, but when I went to university in Britain, all right, the, they thought the role, and I did philosophy and physics. Yeah. Um, they basically said the role of philosophy was to analyze, so I wasn't allowed to talk about what is beautiful, I went to do aesthetic or what is right. I had to talk about a linguistic analysis of what somebody means when they say something is beautiful, and to yeah. me that was never philosophy, right? That was the analytical tradition, and I remember I, the first essay I wrote, right? It came back with this is metaphysics, not philosophy, please rewrite it. And I sent it with metaphysics is philosophy, please mark it. And we carried on like that for three years, right? You could do this sort of stuff in the 70s, right? Um, I think if you look at it, let's take a couple of things we used a lot of. Heidegger famously says, man thinks he's the master and shaper of language, but language is the master of man. Right. Right, so language actually, and then you can link that in with the work we've done with, for example, Deleuze's concept of assemblages, right? Which is that a pattern of narrative creates an attractor well. So I've put Deleuzean assemblages together with tropes, together with stranger draft. Sorry, I'm a generalist, so I synthesize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It basically says this pattern of micro narratives is creating an attractor well that you can't escape. And yeah. that's what the populist trigger, their key phrases, are making that well deeper. It's not a logical process, right? Derrida used, we've taken Derrida's concept of aporia. I have deliberate confusion, yeah? And stuff from the other existentialists. So I think the key approach we took, all right? And this is a major shift. I mean, from both the philosophical and the, the physics perspective, you're taught to despise social scientists, right? Yeah. So from a physics perspective, no social scientist, let alone a management scientist, has ever had enough data to form any valid conclusion whatsoever. And from a philosopher's point of view, we don't think they can handle a decent concept, all right? So the big thing I've done and developed and pioneered is to say that you can't use a case-based approach to create theory. This right. basically challenges virtually everything in management education. And the reason you can't do it is that actually you can never get enough cases or enough context to draw valid conclusions anyway. And secondly, in a major crisis, you can't afford to use past patterns of success to deal with current possibilities. It's a mistake. Right. But we do know, 
things about systems. So we know if the system reaches a certain level of entanglement, it's complex, which means it has no causality, but it has dispositionality. So you can't manage for endpoint. We know that um, human beings will scan two to 3% of what's available. Yeah, blend fragmented memories and do a first fit pattern match. So because right. we know those things and they've been subject to repeated experiments, we can build methods and tools consistent with the natural science. And that's called naturalizing sense making. Right, right, right. Okay. And well, let's talk a little bit more about sense making because that's, that's key here. So as a, as a practice in complexity, why is sense making important? Well, what is sense making and why is it important? Okay, well, there are five different schools of sense making now established in the literature. Right? So this isn't me speaking, this is Oxford and elsewhere. Yeah. So you've got the sort of classic information processing approach. This is the sort of data information, knowledge, wisdom stuff and, you know, information management, right? You've got Carl Weick, who's kind of like the granddaddy who developed sense making as a concept based on case-based work. Um, Brenda Dervin, who I know well, who came from library science and postmodernism. Gary Klein, who I've worked with, who came from cognitive psychology. And then my school, which interestingly in the model sits in the middle of these, yeah, which is quite a good place to be, which is called naturalizing sense making. So I define sense making as how do we make sense of the world so that we can act in it? And with that comes a concept of sufficiency. How do I know that I know enough to act? Because I right. can't know things perfectly. And the naturalizing in that comes from the philosophical concept. Naturalizing is to root what you do in the natural sciences because that's subject to repeatable experiments by third parties. Right, right. Okay, okay. And so complexity is one of the sciences we use. Yeah. Cognitive neuroscience, another. Biological end of anthropology, another. Right. And in terms of in practice, then, what does, what does this mean? So we're basing it in narrative. It's naturalized or natural, or we're taking a naturalizing. Yes, I mean, one of the methods which we're about to deploy um, on mental health issues at government level and medical level is entangled trios. So you define 20 or 30 roles, yeah, which are part of the formal system. You then put those roles together in pairs to get cross-silo collaboration. And each of the pairs can has options to nominate a third. Right. So, and they get tasks, they record lessons learned, we give them software to do that, right? What I'm actually doing is generating the informal network. And I'm using the roles as a point into the formal system. So if we get early signs of mental breakdown, one of the roles can pick that up without the formal system needing to do it. So we're looking at that at the moment in the NHS, because if we can increase horizontal network density, a lot of the system can look after itself right. rather than going to formal roles. So that's, that's a method-based approach. Yeah? Um, Narrative-based approaches, well, one of the ones I'm proud of, we, we've done a lot of work with citizen journalism. Yeah? So getting young people to act as ethnographers to their own community. And then building the narrative pictures from that, which are drawn like fitness landscapes, so that you can say, I need more of these, fewer of those, which is vector theory of change. So then we brought chance generational pairs together. So young people can be trained in the software if they bring somebody from their grandparents' generation with them. Now there's science behind that because innovation happens under 25 and over 45. It doesn't happen much between. Yeah. It's linked to brain plasticity. Right, so we're putting young and old together 
we know that the old guys are networked and know what will work or not work, and the young guys are bright and enthusiastic. The two together are more or less unstoppable. If they come up with a good idea, they get put into a trio with somebody in government who can make the idea work. Right. And we've done that to actually make major change at a local generative level. This is a form of hyperlocalization. Yeah. And that was done with a mixture of narrative maps to identify the shift that you wanted. But if you say to somebody, we need more stories like this and fewer stories like that, everybody gets it. So, for example, in the work we do in hospital safety, if you say, how do we make patients more safe? People say, we already do. If you say we need more patient stories like that and fewer patient stories like these, everybody can buy into that. Right. Right. We're about right. to start a really interesting project on how do you handle decisions to withdraw life support from young children. Yeah. Uh, which is going to be a difficult project, but a valuable one, because what actually happens is the language of the doctors becomes highly professionalized to immunize themselves from the, yeah. the horror. Because they're facing it all the time. And the parents get increasingly emotional. So by the time the medical staff have to talk with the, the relatives, it's too late because they're, they're talking different languages. So we're looking to create a narrative base for understanding over the life journeys of all those involved. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So just to, to try and make, because I think this is such an important idea, this idea of sense making. So, so we're making sense by asking people to record their stories we're also making well, sense by applying a method and, and asking people to talk yeah. to each other those were the two examples yeah not necessarily to talk to each other sometimes to act together i mean it's it's, it's, sort of, it's one of the sort of freudian inheritances which is a real problem in management science people need to realize freud was quite cute in the 19th century but we've grown out of it is that everything has to be articulated? And the answer is no, it doesn't, right? A lot of changes happen by people just doing things differently. Yeah. So the key thing to understand about a complex adaptive system is defined by its connections, not by the things that connect. So the entangled trios method we use is based on that. So we connect people in different ways and see what happens. Right. Yeah. The narrative is the narrative is, is a primary sense making technique. Yeah, but it's the same sort of principle. So a network is, is defined by its connections, not by the, the entity. So, you start, so if you want to change people, don't, ch don't try and change the individual because A, you can't, and B, it's immoral, despite what the, yeah. Instead, change who they interact with. Right. And then they make their own decisions about how they change, but what you're concerned with, what they do, not what they think. Yeah. So, for example, we're about to start a big program on leadership in the health, health service, Yeah. And it's not about leadership competences, it's about leadership interactions. Right. Yeah, because actually, if you can make if you can make interactions visible and people can see the consequences and they can see the different perspectives, they can come to the right conclusion. It's not about competences and counseling and articulation, because that doesn't scale. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You can't scale, you can't I mean, I had this argument with Peter Senge just before I accused him of being neocolonialist, all right. And um, he said, you can't change, the system's too big. You have to change it one person at a time. And I said, well, if you try and do that, the system will never change. Mm. Because there's too many people. Right. But you can change the way that identities interact. And then the system will actually change at a much lower energy gradient. And I think the trouble with the Sangi, that whole school, which comes from cybernetics and systems thinking, which is not the same thing as complexity, is it's reductionist and linear. Right. 
it thinks that the secret is to find out what the units are, get the units right, and then magically the system will work. Well, complexity says actually that's really bad science. Units don't matter so much. What matters is their, their communication, their interaction. Right. Okay. And so that's the, because what I'm trying to do is try to create some distinctions for people so we can really understand clearly this, this term sense making and then how we one, use it. Sorry? Do, do not confuse complexity thinking with systems thinking, let alone systems dynamics and God help us cybernetics. Right. No, no, I get that. And let's, let's do that. So definitely let's do complexity versus cybernetics and systems thinking. I'd love to get into that. But just to come back briefly to the sense-making piece. So, so you're saying the, the sense-making in the way that you understand it is different. You've given two examples there. One is this method-based approach where we're connecting yeah. individuals and the importance is the connections that they make, not, not if they speak to other, how they speak to each other. It's just the fact they're connected. Yeah, so and if the you action. manage the connections at scale and then you observe what happens at scale. And right. the key thing is you, you scale a complex adaptive system by decomposition and recombination, not by imitation. Right. So the whole of organic life form comes from various recombinations of four chemicals, and it's the same principle. Right, okay. Right? okay. So that, that allows contextually based scaling rather than trying to do the same thing time and time again. Yeah, no, I, okay, I get that. And now, the, so the other way to do it is, is an ecological metaphor, not an engineering metaphor. So the, the engineering came in as, a, as an underlying metaphor in the 80s, and that's yeah. where systems dynamics and everything else took off, all right? Um, and the trouble is engineers want plans and goals. Um, complexity is an ecological metaphor. What matters is you know where the hell you are and what you can do next. Right. And you actually know that trying to engineer a garden doesn't work. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we've got, we've got, we're talking about sense-making. We're talking about one mode of sense-making is this, understanding the connections between individuals and potentially and presumably a mode of affecting change is manipulating those or, connections or between identities or between people it's not all yeah. about individuals yeah yeah um and another mode is 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 understanding narratives is understanding what people are articulating but understand and it's not understanding narratives it's understanding patterns in self-interpreted micro narratives that's very different right um and yeah, yeah. because and this is also what's called epistemic justice or cognitive sovereignty. That the power is in interpretation. And what you see with a lot of narrative techniques is the narratives are captured and then people use workshops to interpret them. Well, that, 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 that dom, you know, the facilitator dominates that. The facilitator cannot avoid dominating those groups. Yeah? What we do is people self-interpret their own narrative into a statistical framework. So they own the interpretation. And that allows us to have huge volume capture yeah, after initial setup, there's no incremental cost of capture. Right. Yeah. So it's the analysis of the self-interpreted micro-narratives, which is short stories, yeah. right? Or short snippets of experience well, what you articulated. Do, you, look for, you look for statistical patterns through visualization and stats in the way that they interpret it. Yeah. And then you read the stories to explain the statistical pattern. You don't start with the stories. The stories are explain them. Right, right. Because if you start with a story, the first three stories you read will influence how you see all the others. Right. Okay. And I get, I get, and that's, and you're talking about scale and not focusing on the individuals. And by seeing these statistical patterns across Big a patterns. system, 
yeah. if you're you're able to interpret the system and you don't get caught in the stories of the individuals. And you're able to actually see what the dominant patterns are which are influencing behavior. So I'm currently specking something up on blue v red peace and conflict resolution in the states all right what we want to do there is to is to use children's ethnographers to break down to micro narratives at the street level and then find where the narratives are interpreted in common between warring factions and bring them together around those micro narratives right rather than have them rather than a traditional peace and conflict let's get them all together in a workshop and we'll talk about why they should stop fighting yeah. Now I did some of that work back in the 70s in Northern Ireland. So we had one approach, which is get Catholics and Protestants together in a big room and talk about how we shouldn't throw petrol bombs at each other. Yeah. Something which was wonderfully satirized in episode one of series two of Derry Girls. If you haven't seen it, it was just beautifully satirized. Yeah. And of course, they had great success in the workshops. Everybody agreed they'd be nice, but within weeks they were throwing petrol bombs against each other. Um, I was working in Den Cree. We took two Catholics and one Protestant or two Protestants and one Catholic and we dumped them into Latin America for three months. And we didn't talk about the troubles. Right. And they so we changed their interactions and we changed, changed their, their context. And you didn't attempt to change and they them. Suddenly you, didn't, you didn't try to give them counselling or therapy about their experience no, and no. The troubles. They, they changed themselves because they discovered they had more in common than they thought and they created lasting friendships. And then you only have to make a small amount of changes for that to, to, to exaggerate when you come back. And again, that's, I mean, I didn't know about complexity then. This is just intuitive, right? But I now know the scientific reason why that worked is we, we changed the context and we changed the interaction and we allowed the psychological changes. That was their affair, not ours. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too much organizational change. In fact, anything which is derivative of Freud or Jung, I find very suspicious because it's it's a therapy technique brought sideways into organizations yeah so it assumes that people need therapy and it privileges the therapist yeah and therefore that makes it to me deeply dubious from day one most most people in organizations don't need therapy they just need the right resources and the right interaction right right okay and this, so, and everything we've just dis described here is is distinct from other sense making techniques. In in which specific ways? Um, well, we overlap. I mean, I use Klein's work a lot, and Gary Klein and I work together. Yeah. Um, same with Brenda Durving. Right. Um, I've got a huge amount of respect for Carl Wyke, but I don't think he said his context enough. So, if you look at high reliability organisations, his book with Sutcliffe, I think if you look at the context, the people he studies, it turns out they're all crews. So he, he studies companies who have a, you know, organizations which share failure. Well, that's actually a key thing in knowledge, right? If you share failure, you get learning. You don't get it through sharing success. Right. When you look at the context, he studies firefighting crews, aircraft carriers, and in crews, people are trained in role and role expectations. So it's the role sharing failure. And I shouldn't have said this at one conference where I was at with him. I said, well, I can get the same behavior as firefighters if I burn the office down every morning, but that's not acceptable practice, right? So I think, yeah, so I think the, these areas overlap, all right? Um, but there are different emphasis on it, all right? We're, our distinct approach is to take natural science, but of course that means we pick up on a lot of Klein's work because he's coming from that. We pick up on Brenda's work on narrative and she's informed by us. And a lot of my work has been based on trying to reverse Ashby's law. So looking at what comes from the information processing and saying, well, that gives us a problem. 
is there a way to reverse that I, by changing the way we think? So all of these things contribute to each other and feed off each other over time. Right. And what is Ashby's law and what's the reversal of it? Okay, so Ashby said only variety can match variety. So as you get increased variety of stimulus, you have to have increasing resources allocated to response. So it's almost like you can draw it as a straight line. Right? Now, this comes from my work on counterterrorism. So the problem there is that the terrorist is doing, there are lots of terrorists doing lots of small things and the state has got a response. So you consume a huge amount of resources. Yeah. So the work I did for John Poindexter in the States, working with Brasser and others, was to say, how do we reverse Ashby's law? And one of the ways you do that as a state is you use your citizens as censors. Right. Because now you've distributed information processing, so you only have to look at anomalies and you've now got asymmetric advantage over the terrorist. Right. Right. Now that was me, and, and that's a classic, to be honest, that's a classic thing you're trained to do in philosophy is get something stated as impossible and then try and look at its assumptions and try and find ways to break it. Yeah. But how are you reversing it? Because it isn't, aren't you simply matching variety? You're matching the variety of no, materials you're actually and techniques. It. So the, the, it's, it's an energy gradient. So you're basically saying, if I use my citizens as a network, the energy is coming from the system, not from the yeah. centre. Right. So I just have to look for things thrown up by that. So I actually have less information processing to do than terrorists. And you can then get clever. So you can throw information to increase the amount of processing the terrorist has got to do. Right. Yeah. That so you do things the terrorist doesn't know how to handle, and that forces them to become more visible. I, I was at scariest. I was at a conference in Maryland. It was one of those conferences where it takes you two hours to get through security to be allowed in. Uh, you present, and then you're sent out of the room where they have a discussion, but you haven't got security clearance for the discussion. And you get called back in to ask a question and you can work out what they said, right? So it's one of those games. And somebody said to me when I finished this, they said, well, give us an example of how we would stimulate Al-Qaeda. This is many years ago, right? Yeah. A few years after 9-11. Um, and I thought of the perfect example, but I knew it wouldn't work with the audience, but I couldn't think of another, so I just had to go with it. And I said, well, the next time the Israeli prime minister comes to Washington, you arrest him as a war criminal. And there was this total silence in the room. And somebody at the back said, just tell me what you mean by that, buddy. All right? This is a danger sign with Americans. And I said, well, for a start, he is a war criminal. And secondly, if you did arrest him, what the hell do you think Al-Qaeda would do about it? Because their whole narrative structure is based on the fact you're pro-Israel. Right. And I said, it would take them three years to adjust. And in adjusting, they tell you where they were. I actually got a stand innovation in that one because they got the point. Right. Yeah, so what you're doing is you're changing, you're changing the, this is all about, complexity is all about managing energy gradients. And if you want people to change, you have to make the energy of changing less. So if people have to do something difficult to change, it won't happen. And inspirational speeches and change programs won't make a difference. Yeah, you basically have to make it easier for people to do things you want than the things you don't want to do. And that's changing the dispositional state. And that's what we do with sense making. We, we look at the dispositional state and then we change the structure of the state or we try and change the structure of the state. And when the energy gradients are right, then we trigger change. So this is, if you look at nudge, nudge economics. Yeah. Um, I actually don't buy the, the nudge unit. I think they're, they're, they're manipulative, right? They don't nudge, they yank. No? 
what we do is when the system is ready to nudge, we make it visible. And with transgenerational pairing, people in the community can nudge it themselves. Right, right, right. That Yeah, that makes sense. And a couple of things come to mind is this energy gradient idea is I think of my own experience with alcohol, right? And I, I had, you know, I was, I was a binge alcoholic. And it was only when the energy for me to change my habits around uh, alcohol, which was not insignificant, was lower than to keep going with the turmoil of continuing my drinking that I got it. And I had it when I reversed diabetes. When I got the diabetes 2 diagnosis, I had a choice. I could either go into gradual decline or I could do something. And I just, it was a trigger point. Yeah. And I lost 35 kilograms over the next four months and I'm now clear. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, you can reverse diabetes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I was lucky I knew about it. But the point is, that was a catalytic event, changed change the energy gradient for me because it made it approximate problem not a long-term problem yeah so human beings are very bad at long-term decision making but they're quite good at short-term decision making yeah Yeah. so we've accepted restrictions for covid that we should be accepting for climate change but we're not doing it for climate change because that's still too far away in the future so i think that's the other thing is you need to look at proximate and it's not a rational process it's a what's easiest to do Exactly. And that's exactly my experience with alcoholism. It's like, mm. it's, I'm not thinking, oh, in, in 30 years, I'll have a healthier liver, right? Mm. I'm thinking, this is going to cause me less pain. And, to and give COVID doesn't mean to get to that. I mean, I, I, I've, I've been trying to skip alcohol, you know, two or three nights a week, because I was getting into I'm home. I've got this gin cabinet and the beer comes every month. And um, it's the yeah. end of the day, right? Um, yeah. Whereas normally, if I was traveling, there's a rhythm to it. And okay, I'd have a gin and tonic in the lounge or on the plane, but most of the time you're traveling, you're going to conferences. Yeah. Yeah. It's different. But now well, I've been at home for the longest time I've been at home in 40 years. Yeah. 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 No, that, okay. And this links to something else I read in the book, this, this distinction between uh, chronological time and, and chaos time or this opportunity kairos, yeah, 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 kairos time not care kairos we're all seeing that at the moment i mean i've just realized it's bloody friday again i mean it's actually quite scary if you don't get variety in your life time flows very quickly yeah yeah and and i think this this speaks to what you're what we're, we're considering here so if we're looking for energy gradients, what we're not doing is we're not trying to, you know, on chronological time, say, okay, I want to see this behavior shift by this point in time, and I want to see this shift in structure of the organization by this point of time. We're sort of we're looking and we're sniffing for that opportunity where we can make it easier yeah. for somebody to You're do the thing. You're also looking for the opportunity where a catalytic event could actually trigger a phase shift. I mean, we need to look for that on climate change. Right. So we're looking at how do we link attitudes to COVID with Black Lives Matter with climate change. Yeah, to see if we can get people to see the connections between those. So you you can sometimes achieve a drastic change, but you've got to be careful because you can't predict what will happen. Right. The only thing you know with absolute certainty about a complex adaptive system is any intervention will produce unintended consequences. Yeah. Which means you're ethically responsible for them, even if you couldn't have predicted the individual ones. Yeah. Which is what I find interesting back to our COVID responses, the, the papers out of Stanford suggesting that some of the lockdowns may have 
the unintended consequences of there being more deaths in the long run than they save in the short run. Yeah, I'm not sure I buy into that, but I think I think to be honest, from a government point of view, if the NHS wasn't get overwhelmed, they'd go for herd immunity. They 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 basically vaccinate the elite. The only reason they're doing this is because they can't, you know, politically they can't cope with, you know, too many people for the system to cope with. Mm. Uh, with doctors making triage decisions about who gets to live and die at the entrance to the hospital, and we're pretty close to that at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I think, that, but I do, th 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 that was an important takeaway for me first coming across your work is the, is the notion of unintended consequences. It's amazing though, if you look at the Brit Britain at the start, they built the Nightingale hospitals because they, it was a classic engineering approach. We needed capacity. Nobody thought about the staff to run them. Yeah. And in parallel, they were making it really difficult for European trained nurses to stay in Britain because they were still on the Brexit line. And yeah. the real issue was always the staff level. It wasn't the physical level. Right. Hospitals can improvise around equipment, and they have actually more effectively than building specialist hospitals. What they needed was the staff. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we've talked about we've we've uh, well I'm also noticing we've got one minute left according to our schedule. D can you run over or are we? Yeah, I can run over. Okay, um, so I think we've we've given sense sense making a good um a good shake. We mentioned this distinction between systems thinking, complexity thinking. Let's talk about that a little bit because a lot of people will be familiar with that term systems thinking. And yes, you know we should be thinking of the system as a whole, and that's important. Um, but what's the distinction you're making here between that and complexity? Well, I think you've got to be careful here because I, th I think to use systems thinking as an overriding title for everything, including complexity, is just homogenization. It just means thinking systematically. Um, and that doesn't work for me, all right? I think complexity deals with systems which don't have material linear, linear causality, and that is so important. It makes them a distinct group, Yeah. I think the other problem is if you look at it, systems thinking and, and particularly systems dynamics and cybernetics, yeah, all really arise from the sort of engineering revolutions and the information processing revolutions of the 70s and 80s. That's their origin. Yeah. And that's not necessarily an ecological model. If you look at the latest um, uh, Kaspari at, at Durham University produces a map of the origins of complexity theory. Um, yeah which has got me on it in the top right-hand corner of applied complexity these days, which is nice, right? What you'll actually see is complexity has multi-threaded origins. Some of it goes back to cybernetics, but it also goes back to biology and chemistry and physics. Yeah? Right. So complex adaptive systems theory is a natural science, whereas systems thinking is a social construct. Yeah? Right. And there are other distinctions. Probably the key practical difference is if you look at all the popular methods on systems thinking, they get a bunch of senior executives together. I'll give you three cards. And they say, where do we want to be? And then they say, how do we close the gap? Yeah. And you get this crazy metaphor of the body, right? Nobody should do a metaphor from the body to the organization. It's just completely wrong, right? Um, in complexity, we say kind of like, where are we at the moment? Where are the directions of travel? So in complexity, you start journeys with a sense of direction, which means you're open to novelty on the route. Whereas in all the popular approaches to systems thinking, you start with where you want to go and you try and get there. Yeah. 
The other thing about complexity is actually we don't think about the system as a whole. Okay. We actually think that's a mistake. Okay. All right. What you think about is, you know, fundamentally, what are the what are the identities or agents in play? What are the interactions and what are the constraints? And which of them yeah. can we manage? And let's see yeah. what happens. Yeah. 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 Right. And um okay. Now that that makes a lot of you know we're also a lot less prone to platitudes. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And the metaphors there are important, and that comes again, uh, comes across again. Yeah, it's, 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 it's ecology against engineering. I mean, Senge is quite interesting. Because if you if you read the, the Fifth Discipline, which of course was written by lots of people other than Senge, Senge was one of the authors on that. He's got the credit for it. He basically says everybody should assume their individuality in the common direction of the company. Right. Now, I actually think that's evil. And it, it won't work anyway, but that was the, you know, that concept of alignment and common beliefs. I mean, the, the good news is it will never happen. The bad news is if it did, you destroy variety in the system. And then you get sort of nonsense, like we've now stopped having, I mean, it's bad enough when we have mission statements. Now we've got purpose statements, right? And it's like every couple of years, somebody makes another attempt to do one of these idealistic future states. If you want to be purposeless, the best way is to have a purpose statement. <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah yeah and that well i get it i suppose it speaks to your point about like try, try and work on the individual this isn't about trying to get the individual to conform to a shared goal or a shared vision yeah. or a shared understanding i think Cindy, yeah it's it's don't don't try and do that <laughs> focus no. on the interactions i mean a it won't work and b it's immoral it's a moral use. And it's also evil. Why, why do you consider it evil? That sounds strong. Oh well, come on. I tend to. I tend to be a provocateur anyway. But I mean, it was interesting. I remember turning up to a conference in Washington, right? And there were three keynotes: myself, Peter Senge, and one other. I can't remember who the other. Oh, Bruce. That was it. And the idea was each of us would present for twenty minutes, and the other two would respond for ten minutes each, and we'd rotate. Yeah. Which I thought was a cute idea. People were selling tickets because normally Senge would appear on the platform with people like me, right? And then we got there on the day and Peter's people, because you never meet Peter, right? I mean, I, I, I was a keynote at his conference in Vienna and he never even said hello, right? Right. Um, right. Peter's people came to see us and said, well, Peter thinks this is a bad idea. So he's not prepared to let you speak. He wants to take the whole hour and he thinks we shouldn't be negative. So only positive questions will be allowed. And I remember I went ballistic, all right? And Bruce and I went off and recorded a video on this. And that was when I first said he was neocolonial. Because what Peter has decided, and Otto, Otto Scharmiger is the same, is if everybody was a white Boston Brahmin liberal educated at MIT, the world would be a better place. Right. And it might well be, but it ain't going to happen. And that's another type of cultural imperialism. Right, right. Yeah. No, I get it. Okay. The other thing I wanted to touch on was, um, and you make this this distinction in the book between epistemological, phenomenological, and ontological, right? Which for some people will be quite <laughs> familiar terms, and and yeah, how that relates to Stacy, because you know who's another complexity thinking uh, thinker, and I've read some of his work. Um, so that's what I wanted to get into. So let's to what in what realm do you see Kinevin playing, and um, and how okay. do you see it? Uh, its relationship with the Stacey ideas. 
I, I think postmodernism and post-structuralism is kind of like, yeah, I couldn't give a flying duck to quote the thing, right? Um, yeah, my favorite, you know, reality exists, learn to live with it. Right? It's not all about perception. So if you want to use ordinary language, the world is a material world, yeah? And not in the Madonna sense of that phrase. Um, we have knowledge about the world, which actually exists independently of people, scientific knowledge and so on. And then we have perception, right? How people see things, right? Now, one of the things we do with Kinevin is we try and irritate the system so that those three get aligned. So if perception, knowledge, and reality are aligned, you've got good sense making. They never are fully, but the more right. you can interact them, the better, right? Okay. So ontologically, I'm a realist, right? In that sense. Stacey isn't. Stacey is a pure postmodernist. Right. So Stacey right. actually thinks everything is complex. Yeah, that's right. He also has this real problem. Anybody he doesn't understand or disagrees with, he calls a systems thinker. I mean, he's called me that, Poisson that, other people that. It's okay. And mostly in footnotes because he doesn't want to give you prominence. Right? So the danger is what people do is they take the words. So I, I got um, complex and complicated from Paul Hillier's. Yeah. I'm not sure where Stacey got them. I know Barbara got them from me at a workshop in New York, but she never acknowledged it, right? Um, but then we all do different things with it. So Stacey creates a Stacey matrix, which lots of people know, yeah? He actually deprecates it now. He wishes people wouldn't use it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the fundamental difference between me and Stacey is... From my point of view, and I think the science backs me up on this, both the physics and the mathematics, complex, chaotic, and ordered systems are different. And they right. go through phase shift. Stacy thinks everything is complex. Stacy doesn't think Stacy thinks man management is a mistake. I think it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. But you need to know what you manage. In a complex system, you manage the constraints. In an ordered system, you can manage the outcome. So there's a complete, I mean, yeah, I've read Stacey, anybody's read Stacey, but I didn't start from there. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, there was a, there's one really bad book on complexity, which has got two brilliant chapters by Peter Allen and the rest is crap. And somebody basically said that Stacey, I and Barbara came up with a distinction together, which indicates they just haven't read any of the literature. The, the reality is there's certain words available to you use them. Yeah. Yeah. When I first started, I had known knowable complex and chaotic. Yeah. Yeah, didn't even use, you know, you know, didn't use complicated then, right? I then shifted it over and I've moved, moved a couple of times on the language, right? Yeah. But that's the difference, right? Say so reality exists and we can know things about the world objectively. It's not all about perceptions. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, no, I see that. I, I suppose one of the and things. By the way, mental models are crazy. There's no such thing as a mental model. That's really bad science. Right. Uh, that, that, that's, that's running a computer model onto individuals. It's not the way we Well, that's the Segi idea as well, right? The idea of a shared mental model. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And that was terrible. I was at his conference in Austria, right? And he was on some retreat or something. So the Australians sneaked me on the platform when he wasn't there, didn't know about it. And I had this long session. And um, I mean, they irritated me up front. And I remember, I just thought it was an innocent comment, right? And I said, you yeah, know, mental models was a really cute concept in the 80s, but now we know it's not true. Let's move on. And there was a sudden silence in the hall, right? Um, either way, that, that, there's a lot of stories about Vienna. <laughs> but the idea that I'm attracted to from the Stacey work is, is this idea of transformative causality, right? 
that you know I'm creating you as you're creating me and we're both in this sort of this exchange of somehow creating each other as we as we've we always had fluffy bunny tendencies they're coming out now well I do have fluffy bunny tendencies. and and that but that somehow resonated right this idea that I'm in some kind of entangled exchange with you and and if that's, that's true then and it's not all all of all of reality in, in entangled in such a way and therefore we don't have ordered systems right because everything's yeah, but, but remember but stacy is trying to re- rehabilitate mead's theory of communication that's where stacy that's where ralph's coming from right right um so from my point of view yeah you you get transformative conversations but it's not the whole of it right yeah and that's the problem it's really with patricia sure it's all about going into a workshop and patricia will facilitate you having the right sort of conversation and i can't like project that um i'll go back to my coromila v sending people overseas right there are many ways you can entangle people and conversations with fancy sounding words on them are probably not the way you make change in society as a whole right but, but you've been accused of that a few times no I, I use scientific language and i'm prepared to use simple language as well what i don't do is create an esoteric language right of you know, phrases which are, are magical mystery phrases that you you can't argue with. Yeah? Right, right. And somebody said that to me, they, they should have known better. It was on the thing I was saying, you're talking about a transformative form of holism. And I said, that's gobbledygook. It means nothing. And they're still recovering from that. Right. But it does. It. I mean, she has no idea what it meant whatsoever, right? Um, yeah. I, I use a Socratic technique. And it's just, these are words that if I say them, people think I'm saying something wonderful. Yeah. And there's far too much of that, all right? If you use a word somebody doesn't understand, and I use aporia and acceptive, ask them to explain it. Yeah, yeah. Right? Use different words, right? And if they can explain, that's fine. But what you actually got is these cult-like languages which arise. Yeah. Yeah, and you see that you see that in a lot of the Tavstock Institute work and other things. There's this language, and you're, you're, you're expected to suspend belief while you get through the training. At the end of that, you've now got the language. Yeah. Yeah, that's both. Yeah. Right? That, that language should be a body of knowledge within a wide community, not a specialist language within a cult. Yes. Yeah, and that's true. And all of the terms that you use do have applications in other fields, right? It's, yeah. No, no, I get that. Um, all right. No, that helps me understand the distinction between Stacey. Although, I, I mean, I have to say, I think it's worth people reading it from my perspective. I would read the, 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 the work he, he wrote, a joint author on leadership is a good one. And the original one is good. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's valuable stuff in that. I mean, Harry Zukas, who sort of is also a Mead fan, has probably written better on complexity. And he's a heavyweight academic. All right. But I mean, everybody should read one or two books by Stacey because he did. He was the first to use complexity in management science. Right. Yeah. And all credit. I think part of the problem is Ralph, remember, was a prize-winning South African economist. Yeah. So he was on the dark side, and he then got a conversion experience and you know, came away from that. So he, he swung the pendulum a bit far, I think. Right. But he, but he was also useful for me in terms of sort of shaking my faith in, in management science <laughs> in he a way that, that you do, right, to some extent. So. Yeah, but I think, I mean, it was, it, I mean, you go to the Liverpool Complexity Conference, we, we all would like people like Ralph and Stacey and others to work with other people. It's the problem we got with Talib. It's kind of like, it's the Talib way or no way. 
Yeah. All right. And Stacy, to be honest, is fairly similar. It's kind of like if you if you accept his language, right? So there's no discourse. Yeah. You're right. And, and Sengi, my view, like. yeah, my view is very simple. All right. If you, if you're in that sort of thought leadership position, you should be prepared to be challenged and to challenge in turn. And if you're not prepared to do that, you just get surrounded by the cult, and then you get immunized. Yeah. 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 I see that. Well, let's talk about Taleb because because I've watched from afar the exchanges on Twitter. And it didn't last for long. It didn't last for long, but it, it seemed to be that one of his criticisms was that you know that there's no mathematical basis for Kinevin. You know, where's your where's your mathematical proof, Dave? Seemed to be that actually he didn't. He never said that, right? And the, the sequence with Taleb was actually very simple. Right, so I tweeted something about a review by that I forgot the name of the Guardian political columnist who's a savage wit. I mean, he's brilliant. He created the idea of Maybot, so he destroyed our former prime minister with that phrase, all right? <laughs> so he wrote a wonderful review about anti-fragile. Yeah, I mean, it was just hysterically funny. And Taleb went ballistic, apparently, absolutely ballistic, because Taleb hates journalists. So I read this, all right? And I just tweeted, anybody else read this? Do you agree with it? Which seems to me completely innocent. Two seconds later, I get a tweet back from Taleb with your a fucking idiot, Snowden, exact language. Yeah, you can't tell the difference between a parody and a review. And I said, well, a parody can be a review. It's just a form of, yeah. Either way, that calmed out, all right? Then I wrote another post and basically said, I disagree with Taleb making anti-fragile distinct from resilience. For me, you've got a scale from robustness to resilience and anti-fragile systems are a type of resilient system. And we've known about systems that survive through failure for a long time, but actually it can be dangerous. So yeah, the bones can get stressed, but if they break, they never recover at the same level. Yeah, so this privilege and amount, I, I don't agree with it, which is, I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And then get this fucking idiot, and then I get blocked. Um, and then, which I'm in honorable company, by the way, right? Yeah, Daniel Pinker's been blocked, Simon Wardley's been blocked. If you challenge the talent, right, that's it. What then happens is the trolls hit you. And at least one of the trolls is actually Talib. Right. And they just swarm over your social media account with attacks. I, apparently, because I've got an MBA, I'm not allowed to say anything. Right. And then this guy said, well, if you use mathematics like Talib uses it, then he'll listen to you. And it was, well, yeah, but I'm a philosopher and a physicist. I know about the bloody mathematics and I know their limitations and their strengths. Oh, and by the way, go and talk to Didier at the University of Vienna if you want to know about power laws, because he understands them better than Talib does. Yeah, right. And yeah, this is and and the reason Talib has a problem is he will not acknowledge his sources. He would he didn't acknowledge Hollins. That's why he blocked Simon Woodley. So he wants everything to be his original thing. Yeah, yeah. and he only attracts sycophants. And that's a great problem because yeah, five percent of his books is brilliant. 95% is Taleb pontificating. Um, and if he contributed, then he would be within, you know, the, the body of knowledge would advance. Right, right. Yeah. Well, again, and maybe that's another theme here is you're talking about kind of quality of interaction, the importance yeah. of interaction. Um, yeah, and, and I think I think it was interesting because I talked with um, Mary Good and I, we've got a book proposal in the moment, so you know, I was talking with an agent, yeah? And we the first book proposal we put to them, he said, no, I can't do this. And we said, why? He said, there's too much in it. 
he said, what I want is I want one big idea which claims to be completely original with a catchy title every two years and we'll make our money on the speaking fees. And I suddenly thought, shit, that's Taleb, that's Denin, that's what they're doing, right? Um, and I said, but we want to write an authoritative text on the field. And yeah, and I think that's the problem. Once you get into that cycle, that's what you have to do. Yeah. It, I mean, Gladwell is the worst, right? I mean, Gladwell's mm. speaker fee is, and he just parrots the same speech every time. You can watch it online. Why you would pay $60,000 to have him come and speak, I never understood, right? And there's actually a Malcolm Gladwell book generator, if you haven't seen it on the web, which is hysterical. It generates Malcolm Gladwell book titles and covers. Right? <laughs> I mean, and his first book was good, but I mean, don't... And the, the cognitive neuroscience community produced a book called The Invisible Gorilla to counter Blink, because Blink is an appalling book. Right. He's got a thesis, and he tries to find examples to support the thesis. Same, yeah. by the way, as Reinventing the Organization. Lacroix's book, which is one of the two worst books I've ever read on organizational change. Oh, come because on. We've got, started, to, we've, got, we've got to do that. Why is, why is that book one of the worst books? Because he has, well, he has a hypothesis about what he thinks the world should be. Right, the and teal, the, and the, the, the mighty teal organization. Yeah, and the only reason he's got teal is that he couldn't get an agreement with Wilbur and Beck to use the spiral dynamics. Spiral dynamics itself is an appalling pseudoscience based on crap research, all right? Um, I've always been proud to be brown myself, right? And um, so then he goes and looks at the cases and he finds the aspects of the cases which support his theory. And he doesn't report the aspects of the cases which deny it. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, holacracy, which he praises, right? I mean, holacracy is appalling. It's, it's a classic. I mean, I, I know Brian wrote it. It's a nice guy, right? There he's been on I mean, this show. He's a classic programmer. So programmers don't like to manage people yeah so he wrote a process which meant he didn't have to manage people yeah now i can't say who i'm working with at the moment but i'm working with two companies where it's such a bureaucracy as a result that nobody can do anything right um but that's he picks on the exact and he picks on zappos adopting holacracy and doesn't bother to tell you about all the people who were fired from zappos because they weren't prepared to be part of it and all of his cases, if you look at them, are actually inspirational or draconian senior leaders imposing a structure which requires them to be leadership. Well, if you can only have a leadership organization, if a draconian leader inserts, insists on it, you've got a problem. Yeah? Right. And also, I mean, spiral dynamics is just nonsense. So this idea but, but that we can somehow atta attain levels of consciousness, this, that... Well, you can't, right? First of all, Graves originally did his research on his own students in a limited basis without a control group, so that doesn't count. You can't then take that and generalise it. But if you look at it, you've got spiral dynamics, Myers-Briggs, neuro-linguistic programming, all three are pseudosciences. Nobody can repeat the experiments, you know, but people like them because they give a false sense of certainty. Yeah? And people like the Crocs because I want to be jade. Now, actually, you never will be Jade. Therefore, you don't have to take responsibility for yourself. Mm. That, that, that's the way a lot of these things work. They create an aspirational future state, which everybody can talk about and sit around. I call it lotus eating. Yeah, we, we sit around and talk about how wonderful it would be if everybody was like this. And that means we don't have to engage with the real world. And it's actually quite dangerous. Why is it dangerous? 
Well, same reason if you go back to Homer, the lotus eaters basically are sitting on an island and they're disconnected. Right. Yeah. Um, the reality is you need to deal with the present. Yeah, talking about how things should be in three years' time, five years' time, it's a way of avoiding dealing with current realities. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's your... interesting. We're running a big we're a big part the numerous project we're running. We're about to launch this, yeah. Every month we're gonna present a parable from a major world religion. So we're starting off with the parable of the sower, we're moving on to a Sufi story, and we're moving on that to Whale Rider, which is a film. And we're presenting those parables with a what do you think this means for you today story capture. Right? Now, all the world's religions teach through parables. And the essence of a parable is that all paradoxical and ambiguous. You can't like know what you shouldn't do, but you don't know what you should do. Okay? And yeah. that's kind of like how you get the sense of direction. We use parable stories instead of mission statements. Right. Huh. <laughs> and, and that's a very that simple process. You, do you don't see a single mission, mission statement in any world religion. Yeah, they, no. they actually work it through parables and through assemblages of stories, not through individual ones. Right. Yeah, the Good Samaritan is ambiguous. Parable of the Sower is ambiguous. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. It's ambiguous. Yes. It forces It's an apparatic moment. It forces you to think differently. Right. And and your suggestion is that that should be, I suppose, the main the main means of. Providing guidance to people in organisations is there's no such thing as a mean. No, uh, mean means with an N. I know. I said there's no such thing as means. Okay, that's, that's Ricky Dawkins nonsense. Uh, it's it's. I mean, first of all, nobody, no geneticist I know takes a selfish gene seriously, right? Because it's the wrong unit of analysis. It's a sort of phobia. And memes was meant to be the, the idea there's something seeking to replicate itself is wrong. There isn't a single story seeking to replicate itself. There are no memes. There are broad assemblage patterns of multiple fragmented stories which form attractor worlds. That's called a trope. Right. Right. That language matters in this front because if you start to think memes, you think genes and you get into deterministic linear thinking. You're right. Yeah. And I mean, just I'm just imagining people getting their head around this, and because it's so it's so ingrained in us that you know how do we how do we lead an organisation? How do we direct an organisation? Well, we give them a vision, we give them goals, we we articulate it's values. Been a phenomenon since the late eighties. It never happened before, right? And it doesn't happen in an army in in military forces. They have distributed command. I mean, look at what happened with you know with um, team of teams. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, we, we've got different ways of working. I mean, I taught leadership with Peter Drucker, right, which is a huge privilege. Yeah. Um, Save my bacon and IBM a couple of times. I didn't realize that and until I read the book, actually. If you actually go back and look at that, what you actually find is that if you go back before systems dynamics came on board, you know, people just ran companies. Yeah, HR was an, a sort of ex-major with a couple of secretaries and people looked after their own staff and they made their own decisions. Um, the engineering metaphor, and I often say complexity theory and tailorism have a lot in common because they respect people. 
systems thinking has tried to remove people from the equation and try come back to Tarot to make it all mathematical. Mm. Yeah. When I had to employ when I worked in data sciences, I remember employing people that you know taking on a bad project each year to employ enough people to get my wages profile right so I could pay the right wages to my high performing staff. <laughs> Until they had to game the system. Yeah. 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 But, but coming back to this idea, so so one of your suggestions here is that the way that we, uh, one of the ways we affect change in organisations is to talk through stories and parable. One of the ways to sort of transmit morality, even is that. Is that um, parables, yes, all right. Um, doing some work on ethics at the moment as well, but yeah, generally ethics are taught through stories. And if you go back to Aristotle and the concept of virtue is you teach people to be virtuous by the stories they grew up with. You don't try and create rules as to how they should behave because you can trust a virtuous man to make the right decision. Yeah. Actually, and I wrote about this. I got really angry yesterday, so I wrote a cathartic blog. I created a two-by-two two matrix for sin. Okay. Right? And there, there are actually, every, every case I make there is a direct attack on somebody who, if they read it, will know it's them, but none, nobody else will. Right? So was, I, I slept really well after writing this, right? And I, I've got, tonight I've got to finish off the second part of the post, which is how to take revenge on these different types of sin. All right? Now, if you look in that, you'll find a lot of these cases, all right? The, the, the danger of measurement, yeah, the... the the way in which perverse targets force people into inhumane behavior. Yeah. Eh? Because carbon isn't silicon. And all of the systems dynamics things and the targeting and everything else assumes that you've got an engineering problem and you haven't, you've got a complex ecosystem. And it's even more complex because human beings have intelligence and identity and abstraction. Yeah. 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 But that is one of the things you do share with Stacey. So he does criticise management for that, doesn't he? Yeah, but yeah, but Stacey thinks you can't manage. I don't. I think you can. And distinction I made longer an article with Kurtz. All right, we talked about the Italian origin. There's there's, there's manage and menage. Yeah, menage is to ride horses. Manage is to manage a household budget. They're both types of management, right? Where I, and I think Stacey is anti-managerial, and that's really dangerous because actually you need management. Yeah. And and this nonsense of saying there are managers and leaders, that's all all managers lead and all leaders manage, right? It's just ridiculous. It's it's another classic engineering approach. I need it's like it's why Myers Briggs took off, right? Um, there is no scientific basis whatsoever to Myers Briggs. Yeah. It was a woman and a daughter put something together and then Hay Consulting came along. Jung rejected it, by the way. Hay Consulting came along and standardized it and made it a test, right? Um, and it would never have taken off if it hadn't been for the 80s where, they, where the HR departments who were growing too quickly for their own good wanted to classify humans as widgets. Mm. Yeah? And this classification problem is a real issue. Yeah. It's like um, I, one of the methods I created called trielectics is to take one of the dichotomies. You always see these charts, all right, on social media. There's two columns, all right? On the left, there are terribly evil things. And on the right, there are wonderful things, which if you just employ me as a consultant, you will get, right? And it's kind of like, well, you can't argue with the stuff on the left, right? Well, I do, right? I, anybody who does this, I attack it, right? 
Um, because generally you say, but the stuff on the left is perfectly valid in some contexts and the stuff on the right is valid in others. It's, it's not this extreme. So we created a trialectic. We did this with competing values as well. So anytime anybody creates two opposites, we create a third aspect to it. Okay. And so where are you sitting on that? So we, we force that different way of thinking in. Right. Yeah. So the now if you notice what I'm doing there, I'm starting from where people are, you've got to must be hypocritical. People like these things. I add something to it which forces them to think about it differently. Right. Right. So don't plot yourself on a spectrum between like command and control and empowered oh, yeah. staff, right? You yeah. put something in the middle. Yeah. Well, no, add in a third element, should I say? Sorry, a third element, And again, Kinevin is all about different things in different contexts. It says, you know, there's nothing wrong. Command and control in the bottom two domains of Kinevin is essential. Yeah. Yeah. Um, distributed leadership in the top five. And for God's sake, don't talk about servant leadership. That's that, that's just ridiculous, right? It's that. <laughs> That's at the top end of the fluffy buddy scale. Oh yeah, yeah. Come you on. See, I'm a see fluffy leader. buddies after virtue. We we actually have a certificate in cognitive edge. It's called NAFBS. Yeah? Because I was watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer when we when we put it together. I'd never seen seen Buffy before. And I really like Buffy now, all right? So we have new age fluffy bunny slayer t-shirts if you ever want one. I definitely have tendencies in that direction, Dave. So maybe I do need to be slayed. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe that's, maybe that's a good place to end. <laughs> we should put a link to the T-shirt. Good. Well, this has been very entertaining. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Um, we should. Okay. We should, We'll put a link to the book. Can you should make me walk. Last time you maybe walked five hundred yeah. times down a down a lane oh, yeah. locker room with our BBC crew. We did a great job. The other thing which is coming out is next week is the field guide to managing complexity and chaos, which is a joint publication of my centre and the European Commission. So that will be up on the website next week. So you've had no books for twenty years, and now two have come along together, and there's a third on the stock. Yeah, no, finally you're pulling your finger out of your. Uh... <laughs> Uh, it's all together now. You have to wait for it to be coherent to write it. Well, that's the other thing, right? You said you, you said you feel like you you've got to some sense of completion with this in the book, right? You yeah, feel Kinevin's like finished now. Kinevin's more or less there, right? So I'm give working us a on curves and entanglement next. Yeah, so give us a flavour there. Just give us a teaser of of what's what's next from the from the snow okay, brain. So the two next big things. One is called flexures, curves, or apex predator theory. So that's life cycle revisited. So when can I innovate? When can I not innovate? When's it all over? When, you know, yeah. and that links yeah. in with what I'm talking about on rewilding. Right. So it's yeah. looking at the biological metaphors of keystone species, predator species boundaries, right? So that's, that's going to be developed over the next few years. Yeah. Yeah. And then linked with that is a real, I'm going back to some of the original knowledge management and community stuff. Yeah. We got to work. And what I'm looking there is entanglement. And taking the concept of the fungus, which entangles tree roots and provides nutrients. Yeah. So how do you generate an informal network which can sustain an organization so you minimize the formal system? Right. Yeah. yeah. And so those are the two big areas of development. Plus a few other things as 
I mean, the blogs were made for me. I love the blog because I can just write something quickly and then go back and reference it. Yeah, no. And we should, well, we'll, we'll put a link to that as well. That already, yeah. that already recommended reading. All right. Um, well, okay. thanks again. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, and enjoy the, the rest of your uh, Friday afternoon. Okay. Cheers, Richard. <laughs> Cheers. Um, the Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.